If you have your Bible, go and grab those and go to John chapter 3 is where we will be today. Today we're in our 15th week in the Gospel of John, believe it or not, and about 500 more to go. Uh, but today we'll read verses 25 through 36. So today we're reading John chapter 3 verses 25 through 36. And why, why do we actually read the Scripture together? Every Sunday morning, why do we actually read it together? It's, it's not really because of tradition, believe it or not. It's actually because the Bible tells us to. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, Do not neglect the public reading of Scripture. So we're here this morning to worship the Lord, fellowship together, and unpack the Scripture and to hear what God has for us this morning. So that is why we read it together. So today we're in John chapter 3. We will begin in verse 25. It says, As therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, he was with you. Jesus, beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered, said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Verse 30 is the key, is the conclusion. He, Jesus, must increase, but I, John, must decrease. Verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of what he testifies, and no one receives his testimony, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he has been given the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Amen. I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, just to invite the Lord to open our eyes in the Scripture, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, what an honor it is to worship a God that is love, that is perfect, that sent His Son to die on the cross. Lord, I pray this morning that we are not here uh, to be entertained or to be uh, just for ourselves, but Lord, that we would be here to fellowship with other believers, that we would be here to worship You and to hear from Your Word. And Lord, I pray that the Word of God this morning would go beyond just giving us factual information about You, but Lord, it would enhance our heart to serve and to love You. Lord, I pray for this morning that You would engage our hearts and our minds and our will Lord, that we would behold your magnificence. And Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that we would behold his splendor and his majesty. Lord, so many times we are so used to hearing messages or hearing Bible verses about Jesus that it becomes old news. But Lord, I pray that this morning that we would re-engage with your magnificence and with your greatness and with your love and with your majesty. That's what I pray. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in this building and in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I wish to talk to you about exalting Jesus, about living a life, about living a life that decreases self and increases Christ. My goal this morning, the outcome that I hope to have, is that we would humble ourselves and exalt Christ in every way. 
But there's the question, is how? How can we turn our lives to exalt Jesus and humble ourselves? How can we turn our eyes off of self and onto the splendor and majesty and magnificence of Christ? Often, it's only when you stand next to something magnificent do you realize your own insignificance. I'll say that again. Often, it's only when you stand next to something magnificent do you realize your own insignificance. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen something that took your breath away or something that was absolutely magnificent? Okay. Most of us. So have you ever stood beside a waterfall or a tall building? Have you ever stood beside the Empire State Building or at the top of Klingman's Dome? It probably... Its magnificence took your breath away, but also reminded you of how small you probably really are. As you may know, Laurel and I, we love to travel. That is kind of our thing that we do. We have been privileged to travel all over the world. We've seen different continents. We've seen beautiful waterfalls, cliffs, beautiful cities. If you ever want to see something breathtaking, I would highly encourage you to go to Switzerland but save about 10000 bucks, or else you will go broke. Uh, it's very expensive. But there is one thing, I was thinking about this week, what is something that I saw that was just so magnificent that took my breath away? There's many things that came to my mind, but there's one particular man-made thing that just resonated with me. When my wife, Laurel, graduated from college, she graduated with a history degree in secondary education, and as a graduation gift, we took... A trip up the East Coast. We took two days in Washington, D.C., one day in Philadelphia, two days in New York, two days in Boston, and one day in Maine. And then on that trip, I felt most small when I stood next to the tallest building in the world from 1884 to 1889. This building stands in Washington, D.C., and it stands at 555 feet, and I believe at 5 inches it's in an area called the mall in D.C., and I remember being in that grassy mall. You have the Lincoln Memorial on one side, and then you have the reflection pool. And then I remember walking toward this obelisk, if you know what I'm talking about now. You walk toward this obelisk, and at a distance it seems rather small and minute, but then you walk closer and closer and closer, and then you stand beside this 555-foot tower called the Washington Monument, and at that time, perhaps I never felt so small in my life. But imagine with me, imagine that you work there. Imagine that you work at the Washington Monument. Imagine that you see that magnificent building every day and you put up with tourists like me every day, which would drive me crazy. Anyways... But eventually, if you worked at the Washington Monument, what eventually would happen? If you worked at that magnificent building, what eventually happens? The magnificence, the greatness, the grandeur, the majesty, the splendor of the world's tallest building for five years, the, the splendor, the majesty eventually wears off, right? That you eventually just look at that thing as that thing. But what's the truth? that the magnificence of that building has not decayed, it has not disappeared, although its perception in our mind has changed. 
That story is the truth of Christ in every believer. That when we stand next to Christ and we see his magnificence, what do we realize? We realize our own insignificance. That when we read the pages of the scripture, to read the pages of this book, and we see the greatness of our Savior, we see verse after verse, phrase after phrase about his perfection, about how he came as the perfect spotless Lamb of God to die as a sacrifice for my sins. That when we read in the pages of the scripture, we read about his obedience to the Father. We read about his patience that he had with putting up with disciples like Peter. That would be so obnoxious to put up with Peter, right? Can I get an amen to that one? But (laughs) imagine six billion of Peters for eternity. We read in the pages of the scripture, we read about his endless grace towards us. We read about how he gave his life so that I could have life. About how he grants me life, eternal life. But that word eternal life is a really eternal aliveness that because of his death, that I will be able to experience God in its entirety for eternity. That is the magnificence of Christ that we see in the pages of Scripture. But over time, his magnificence wanes. We get used to him. Perhaps we get discouraged with putting up with other Peters in the church, other Christians. Or perhaps we may get tired of bald preachers who preach the scripture. It's shiny. Perhaps we get tired of sermon after sermon, verse after verse, that talk about the magnificence of God, but it becomes old. And it wanes, just like that employee that stands at the Washington Monument. But in reality, despite the fact that he can, in our mind, grow old, despite the fact that we've heard it and his magnificence, that his splendor, that his majesty wanes, when in reality, what? That he is still the same God that loved us, despite what we think. That he is still the same Savior that has never been created, that has always existed. The same Savior that died for my sins, the same Savior that lived a perfect life, who exampled a life to me. That as a Christian, that becomes old. But what I hope today is quite simple. I hope today that we would behold the magnificence of Christ. This week, as I just poured over the scripture and as I prepared, perhaps I have not fretted more over any passage of scripture that I have ever preached in my entire life. And I am not kidding on that because I totally felt totally inadequate to talk about the greatness and majesty and splendor of our Lord and Savior. Because what I realized today in John chapter 3 verses 31 through 36 is that John gives his disciples just the tip of the iceberg about the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And today I realize that I am going to do the same, but what I hope today is that For two-thirds of our time, what I want to do is I want to unpack the scripture together in John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. And then the last part of our message, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a practical exercise to help you re-engage in the magnificence of God. So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn in your Bible once again to John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. 
And what I see in this passage is really John is really answering the question, why must Jesus increase? But first, before we dive in, I want to share a thought from A.W. Tozer. He says this, that Christ, Jesus, who is very God of very God, in him, the God-man, resides the essence of God in totality. While on earth, Christ voluntarily laid aside the exercise of his divine prerogatives to fully identify with us and pay for our sin debt. But in his resurrection, he took up once again the use of all divine powers. If you have your Bible, notice again in John chapter 3, verses uh, 30, you have basically the outline of the passage. But before we really dive in too deep, I would like to kind of set the stage for our discussion this morning. If you were to outline the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John breaks down into three main chunks or sections. You have the prologue, which is in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which really introduces the question of who is Jesus And then in John chapter 1, verses 19 through the end of chapter 12, you have the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And then you have, in John chapter 13, verse 1 through the end of the book, you have Jesus providing practical instructions for his disciples that remain. If you were to outline it chronologically, the beginning is infinity, then it's three years, and then it is three weeks. But if you were here last week, then notice with me, verse 30, this is really the outline for the passage. It says that he must increase, but I must decrease. If you were here last week, then you know why John must decrease. If you were here, then you know that John the Baptist faced a great temptation. What was his temptation? His temptation was pride. What happened? John's disciples began arguing, began debating, began fighting amongst each other. And then they come to John the Baptist and they say to him, what? They say to him that Jesus is baptizing all. What is, what are they, okay. In modern terms, what are they really saying? And I said it last week. They're saying that Jesus' church is bigger. Now, many of us would probably be tempted to respond in a lot of unholy ways, but how does John respond? He responds with humility. What does he say? That all of John's provisions and purposes are given to him by God, for there is no room to boast in anything else. My first point tonight is the point that I had from last week is really humble ourselves by discerning self. And let me explain that phrase real quick, discerning self. What I mean by that is that many of us could use a good dose of self-reliance. That we could have a a, a self-awareness, understanding that who we are in Christ, that all we have in this world is given to us by God for His glory and for His fame But then notice the second half, notice verse 30, and I'll read verses 31 through 36. But as I read this text, what I want you to do is I want you to kind of get involved. As I read verses 31 through 36, I want you to answer the question, what do I see? I want you to make some observations with me, and then we will pick apart the text. Verse 31 says this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. For he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, 
That God is true. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, before we go in too deep, what are some observations? What are some of the things that you see in your text? I see some things repeated. If you notice in verse 31, you have one phrase that is repeated in the beginning and the end of verse 31, except for one word is changed. If you notice, number two, that there is contrast here, that there's a contrast between the one that he comes from above and that he who hears his testimony. Number three, if you notice that in your English, that each verse is a separate sentence, and that is the same in the original language. If you notice here, number four, that there is only one conjunction at the beginning of a verse. It is the Greek or is the English conjunction F O R or the Greek conjunction gar. What else do you notice? That we know implicitly, we know based on the context that John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. But what do you not? What do you notice about this passage that John the Baptist does not actually name Jesus? But let's just answer the question: What is John doing here in these pass in this passage? What is he trying to get his disciples to answer? What John the Baptist is trying to get his disciples and us today to understand is that he, as John, must decrease because all of the provisions and purposes that John has been given have been given to him by God, and he's trying to answer the question, why must Jesus increase, and the evidence is on full display in these verses. But I want you to notice the, the I'm going to say, the reason why Jesus must increase. Notice verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. Why, why must Jesus increase? He who comes from above is above all. Has, can, I just, can I just say something really quick? This is not in my notes, if you're curious. Has that gotten old? Have we gotten used to hearing that so many times that it just becomes old? But listen to it again. He who comes, who is he talking about? Jesus is he who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Who is that? That is John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven is above all. Why must Jesus increase? Because he is from above and he is above all. What is John the Baptist trying to tell his disciples and us today about Jesus? Not only is that Jesus is from above and that he is above all, but what else? Let's just, let's just go there. What is he really saying about Jesus? That Jesus is not just somebody, but that Jesus is fully divine. That he existed from eternity past to eternity future without beginning and without interruption. And I want you to notice that last, that little word in verse 31, it says, all. That Jesus isn't over some things like the universe, but God the Father has entrusted to Jesus Christ all. I think sometimes that we think that Jesus is here to serve our every wish. That sometimes we would like to kind of rub a lamp and ask Jesus to fulfill our every desire. 
But that is such a man-centered idea of the gospel. What is the reality? That because Jesus Christ has died for my sins, therefore I should exalt him with all I have. That Jesus is not just a man. He is not just a prophet, but he is from heaven. Jesus is fully divine. And that is what John is trying to describe to his disciples, that their picture of Jesus is incomplete, that they think that this Jesus is just a good man or prophet, but Jesus is so much more than that, that he is fully divine. What does the scripture say? It is all over the place. We do not have time to read every Bible verse that talks about the deity of Christ. We will read some together. But what does the scripture say even in the Gospel of John? John chapter 1 verse 1. That in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Jesus was pre-existent from eternity past to eternity future. He was never created. Despite Jesus having the comfort of heaven, Jesus came down not setting aside his deity, he took up flesh to die for the sins of the world. Jesus, being fully God, is like the Washington Monument. That we stand beside his deity and we just have to marvel at his magnificence. But what I'm afraid is happening in the church and in my life is that that thought, that fact that Jesus is fully God has become stale or old. But then notice, how does John then further his logic that Jesus is from heaven, but then notice what Jesus has because he is from heaven. Notice verse 32. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. Why must Jesus increase? Because Jesus is from above, therefore he knows truth. Notice verse 32 again. What is he telling his disciples? That Jesus is from God, from heaven, fully divine. And then notice verse 32. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. Let's just say it. On a, on a philosophical level, what is, if Jesus is from heaven, what has Jesus seen and heard? He has seen and heard truth. Why? Not only is he in relations with God the Father, but Jesus is the creator of all things. Can we just say it this way? That Jesus created truth. That Jesus has seen and heard of that which he testifies. But then notice it again. Not only does Jesus know truth, But then notice verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Why does Jesus speak the words of truth? Not only is it because he's divine, not only because he created all things, he created calculus and differential equations. Sorry for all the engineer people in the room. Jesus created all things, therefore he knows truth. And then what does it say in verse 34? He speaks truth. But notice the reason John gives that Jesus speaks truth. Reason number one, what does it say? For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The reason Jesus speaks the words of God is not only because he is fully divine, but also because God sent him. Right? And then notice reason number two. The second reason why Jesus speaks the words of truth is because Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. 
Now, if I'm being a bit transparent on that last phrase, initially when I read that, when it says, for he gives the spirit without measure, I thought that he was talking about giving us the spirit without measure. But within the context of the passage, it is talking about that God the Father sent the Son and has given the Son the Spirit of God without measure. I want you to notice another observation in verse 34. What's unique about it? What's unique about verse 34? What do you notice? Within one verse, you have the Trinity. For he, Jesus, for he whom God, God the Father, has sent, speaks the words of God, and then he, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus speaks truth, he knows truth, he speaks truth, and then notice the third piece in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. If I can put it in a nutshell for you, why must Jesus increase Because Jesus is from above, therefore he knows truth, he speaks truth, and he does truth. Let's just, I've already said this truth this morning, but let's just go back real quick to the first century. What is John's disciples, what are they missing about Jesus? Perhaps they don't know, or perhaps they have forgotten about who Jesus really is, but what are they missing They're comparing John the Baptist's ministry to Jesus' ministry because what? Because they think probably that Jesus is just another good man, that he is just another prophet. But what don't they know or what are they missing? That Jesus is not just another good man, but that he is fully God. He is the creator of the universe, he is the savior of the world, and he is ruler over all. If I can just put it in another nutshell, my point today is to humble ourselves by discerning self, what I mean by that. Friends, this is, if we truly understood that all of our blessings, that all of the grace of God, all the things that we have are given us by God, then we would be far less tempted to take pride in our possessions. So we should humble ourselves by discerning self, by understanding that all of the provisions that we have are given us by God. But we should also exalt Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's old news. It's because Jesus Christ is not just a man. Can I get an amen to that one? Can I just say it this way too? Is that Jesus Christ, if he was just a man, that he could not pay for the sins of the world. But that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And that is the point that John is trying to unpack for his disciples. At this point, John is trying to get his disciples and us today to see why Jesus must increase. And it is because of Jesus' magnificence, his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. That by comparison, we as human beings are mere ants. And that Jesus is holding the universe in the hollow of his hand. I believe that we must exalt Jesus Christ by point number two, by discovering who he really is. And I will give you a practical exercise on that later. But I want you to notice our response 
to this truth. Not only should we exalt Jesus Christ, but then notice in the text with me that there are basically two options. That when we are confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, when we are confronted with His deity and with the gospel, with the life-saving message that He died for my sins, there is only one of two responses. Notice them with me there in verses 32 through 36. Verse 32, what He has seen and heard of that He testifies, and no one receives His testimony... He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. When we hear the truth of the Scripture, when we hear the truth of Jesus Christ as being fully divine and fully human, and that He died for my sins, what are the only two responses that we can give? It is either rejecting Jesus, notice that in verse 32, and no one receives His testimony. It is either rejecting the truth or we receive the truth. And can I, how many of you heard that before in my messages on the Gospel of John? That truth, that when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we, we only have two, that either we reject or receive Him. That if we reject, is if we put off the gospel, we are in a sense rejecting Him. Or that we receive Him and have eternal life. I want you to notice what happens if we reject the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 36. But he who does not receive or obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. To those who reject Jesus Christ, to those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on Him. That word wrath in Greek is a Greek word orge, and it is used 38 times in the New Testament. And when it refers to God's anger, what it is generally talking about is that God's burning wrath towards sin. So what is he saying? That if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, that your sin is still upon you? That without the blood of Christ by faith, without Jesus Christ, that we stand guilty of our sin and we stand condemned of it? But then when we hear of Jesus Christ, we can either reject the testimony or we can receive his testimony. And if we receive Jesus Christ, notice the effect. What are we doing? Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So not only if we receive Jesus Christ in the gospel, not only do we have eternal life, but what else are we doing? Notice what else it says. He who, verse 33, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. That word seal right there is the Greek word meaning a signet ring. In the first century culture, how would you prove the legitimacy of a letter or a message? In order to prove the legitimacy of a letter, you would, the author of the letter would pour wax over its seal and then take a personalized signet ring and place it into the wax, creating a seal and verifying its authenticity. So that when the recipient of that letter, when the recipient would, would see the signet ring, would see the unique, not only would they know that the letter has not been tampered with, but they would know that the sender has guaranteed its contents. When someone believes in Jesus Christ, what are they really doing? Not only are they believing in Jesus Christ, but they are also setting their own personal seal. They are verifying that God is true and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that the gospel saves them from their sin. My point today is this, that we would humble ourselves by discerning ourselves 
and that we would exalt Jesus by discovering him. But I have to be transparent for just a second. As I've already mentioned, the deity of Christ is like a new car. That smells great for a while, but day after day the excitement tends to wear off. Just, just think about this, that God the Son, that Jesus Christ, who has existed from eternity past to eternity future without interruption, that he has been in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past to eternity future, that he would leave the comfort of heaven to take on flesh. And then he would live a perfect and sinless life. And then he would die on a tree in an object of humiliation for people that did not love him and that did not reciprocate his love. How can we gain the excitement? How can we gain and understand the magnificence of that truth again? The only way that I know to humble oneself and exalt Christ is for us to behold his magnificence. For example, seeing I thought about sharing a picture with you this morning on the Washington Monument. But seeing a picture of something that is magnificent does not do it justice. But we must see it for ourselves. That's what I'm going to ask of you this morning. You know, I can stand up here and preach about how great Jesus is and how wonderful He is and how uh, divine He is. And guess what? It's going to be like looking at a postcard. Oh, that's great. Thank you. But what I want you to do this week is I want you to do something a little bit different. I want you to stand beside the magnificence of Jesus Christ and I want you to be in awe of it yourself. But the question is, how do you do that, right? I mean, the question is, how do you actually stand and observe the magnificence of Jesus' deity? I asked myself that very question this week. I was, like I said, I have been wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with this passage of how can I communicate to my people to just stand and stare at the magnificence of Jesus Christ and his deity. I wrestled with this. And then I was standing outside. We were in Big Spring Park with my family this past Friday with a bunch of food trucks. We were just kind of hanging out as a family. And I, I was just walking. The few moments that I had of silence between my two-year-old and my four-year-old running around and almost falling into the pond there, okay, which is terrifying. In the few moments of silence that I had in God's nature, I felt like the Lord kind of placed upon me the thought of how can I actually get you to observe the magnificence of Jesus Christ that John the Baptist displays for all of us. So this week I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I believe that we can behold the magnificence of Jesus Christ when we do two things. Number one is when we observe general revelation. General revelation is how does God reveal himself in nature? So I'm going to encourage you this week to go outside and stare up at the stars and just observe his greatness. If I ever want to get alone with Christ and just be rejuvenated, my soul sits beside a body of water. If you cannot get outside to observe Jesus' greatness, then I encourage you to just look out your window. But then really what I want you to do this week is I want you to answer three questions. So I want you to go outside and I want you to just observe the magnificence of Jesus Christ that he holds the universe in the hollow of his hand. 
But then really what I want you to do, this is really the homework assignment. I want you to answer three questions, and they are in the back of your note sheet in the application portion. The three questions I want you to answer is, question number one is that who am I without Christ? How tall am I compared to the tower of the Washington Monument? Who am I without Christ? Let's just ask that question right now. What are some of the things that I am without Christ? That number one, that I am dead in my trespasses and sins. That I am hostile towards God. Question number two is this. Who is Christ? Who is He? What is His magnificence? John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Question number three is, who am I now with Christ? Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, I am a new creation. Romans chapter 8 talks about how I am a child of God. Before I close, this is what I'm going to do. As I read this section of the scripture, I want you to take these three questions, and I want you to find each of the three questions in this passage. This is out of Colossians chapter 1. It says this, Jesus, who am I without Christ? Who is Christ? And who am I with Christ? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been given, created through him and for him. Let me, re- let me repeat that. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now listen to this next part. Who am I without Christ? And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Let me just repeat those two verses. And although you were formerly, you were small in comparison, although you were formerly alienated and hostile, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through His death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless, beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith and establish firmly and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. This week I attempted to just stand beside the tower of greatness that is Jesus Christ, deity, humanity, and nature. And this is what I said, that Jesus is my Savior. 
He is my Redeemer. He is my God. He is my King. He is my Advocate, and He is my Intercessor. He is my comfort in dark places. He is my security in the midst of fear. He is my reminder of God's love. He is the assurance of God's grace. He is my substitute. He is my forgiver. He is my rock, my God in whom I take refuge. He is the one I look for comfort. He is the one that I look to return. He is my king that I trust. He is my guide granting me words of life. And he is my example showing me the way to live. Before I close, I close every week with this. If you didn't know Jesus Christ, perhaps you have been in church your whole life in the magnificence of Jesus' deity, humanity, the magnificence of his nature, the magnificence of the gospel has probably worn down a little bit. But if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then you are truly lost without him. And that the wrath of God, the penalty of your sin, is on your head. Because we are sinners. But the gospel, that is the problem, and here's the solution. But Jesus Christ, as I've already mentioned, that the gospel is weaved throughout the words of my sermon here this morning. But Jesus Christ has come, and he's died for my sins, that if I believe in him, that I shall be saved. My question for you is that, have you truly believed? Is there a time in your life that you surrender to Jesus Christ and you place your faith in him? And as a consequence of that faith, we change and that we are new creations. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then believe in him and you shall be saved. As I close, I'm going to close with a creed and then we will finish. It says this, And we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were given, were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, became flesh, and was made man. And he suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. And he will come again and judge all and reign. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I, um, I realize uh, very quickly my inadequacy to, talking, to talk about something that is infinite. That, that a finite mind would be able to even wrap his mind around an infinite being. But Lord, I just pray that we would humble ourselves before you. That we would live a life that would be dedicating to serving you because all that we have and all that we are is credited to you and to your greatness and to your love. And Lord, I pray with each and every day that we would exalt you by discovering more and more of who you are, that you are my king and my ruler and my savior, that you're creator of all things. And Lord, I, I realize that words of English fail I realize that any language fails to really understand the greatness of our Savior. But Lord, I just pray as an outcome that we would be invigorated, looking to your majesty and to your splendor and to your greatness. And Lord, that we would take that and let it motivate us to live a life that is glorifying and honoring to you. Lord, I pray for those that are here. pray for those that do not know your Savior, that they would believe and trust in you as such. Lord, I pray for the friends that are in this room and pray that we would live lives of godliness, that we would live the light of the world to the darkness that is out there. I pray you be with those that are online. I pray for protection for them. We love them. 
We thank you for those that aren't able to be here physically. And Lord, I just thank you for this morning and honor it is to be here. In Jesus' name.